welcome to the Business Success Club. I want to say welcome and you are in for a treat in this group. Hey, thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. And on this podcast, what we really want to establish is this. How do hardworking entrepreneurs build profitable and scalable businesses whilst having the freedom and balance to do the other things they love? like family, vacations, sports, fun, adventures, and charity. So let's tune into today's podcast. Hello and welcome to the Business Success Show with your business coach, Mac Atram, and today you are in for a treat. Stay tuned because in a moment, I'm going to be having a conversation with Andrew Schwartz. Why this particular conversation? We're talking all matters legal. Things that you may not be doing in your business that you should be doing. And often when you hit hot water or things are going wrong in a business or someone has stolen from you or your intellectual property has gone missing, that's when you want to speak to Andrew. But one reason why I wanted to speak to, and my team said, let's speak to Andrew, is because we want to preempt all of that. We want to prepare for that. We want to actually have things in place so we don't get to a place where we lose our business or we lose our intellectual property or we lose our, our material things. So Andrew, welcome to the Business Success Show. <laughs> welcome. Thank you, Mac. I'm happy to be here today. Superb. Andrew, let's get straight into it. What I want to do is tell everyone a bit about your background, what you do uh, as a practicing uh, lawyer attorney right now and where you're based. Go ahead. Sure. My name is Andrew Schwartz, as Mac said. I'm a principal. Uh, partner at Stein Sperling, a law firm in Rockville, Maryland, just outside Washington, D.C. Uh, and I am a business corporate attorney. So essentially I act as general counsel uh, for our small businesses, startups, uh, entrepreneurs uh, looking to start their business, looking to grow their business. And I help them with all matters related to their corporate formation, uh, figuring out what entity structure makes the most sense, bringing on employees, uh, real estate related matters. So all things, what we call transactional based contracts. Uh, I'm not one to go to court. I've got other people in my law firm here that are litigating matters, but I work with my small business clients to help them, you know, get their business going and help protect them from any disputes going forward and make sure they're able to scale their business and grow it. Right. You heard it from Andrew. If you are interested in growing, scaling, making your business better, stay tuned, listen to everything he has to say here. It doesn't matter what part of your work, the world you're in. I don't care if you're in Asia or in Africa or in Europe or in the uh, South America or in, in North America, it doesn't matter because what you've got to hear, what, what he's got, we're gonna be talking about is relevant to you if you are in business. And I know most of you are in business right now. Now, Andrew, let me ask you this. If someone's thinking of starting their new business, what are some legal considerations they must put in place before they launch? Sure. That's a great question, Mac. The most important and first initial step is to figure out what type of entity are they going to be? So I know in different jurisdictions and different countries, there's different entity types, but whether it's going to be a limited liability company, whether it's going to be a corporation, an S-corp, a C-corp, whether it's going to be a limited liability partnership or a general partnership. So the key here is to figure out what type of entity structure makes the most sense given the nature of your business. Um, the second part to think about really is where are you doing business? Do you need to be 
qualified to do business in multiple jurisdictions based on what it is you're doing and commerce? And what licenses and permits do you need, um, depending on the nature and industry you're involved in? So most importantly is seek out your professional advisor and to figure out what entity status is the proper one for you. Um, and it may change depending on, are you going to be the sole owner of that entity or are you going to bring on a partner? Um, and there's pros and cons, disadvantages and advantages of doing each one and other considerations to think about as you get ready to scale up and grow your business. Fantastic. Listen, reason why I asked you that question is this. Can you give some examples of where people have not done that and paid the price later on? Or what, were, what was the situation or what was sure. the occurrence that realized, oh, I should have listened to someone like Andrew three years ago, four years ago, five years ago? Right. Unfortunately, I've seen that happen too many times. And, uh, you know, I like to try and talk with my clients about preventative maintenance before it gets to that issue. And so what some of the things I've seen is, you know, they'll say, look, I'm just starting out my business. I've got a lot of my capital and funds going to growing my business and or developing my product. I don't have the funds, you know, to talk with an attorney. And I tell them that's a little bit backwards because it will end up costing you more in the long run if it's not done the right way. So, for example, I've had clients think they're forming their business by themselves. They're the sole owner, but they'll have somebody else sign documents with them or just use their social security number to get a tax ID number or a TIN. And then they grow the business. All of a sudden that person used, they use, sees that the company is growing and starts to make a claim that, hey, I'm a partner in, with this with you. You know, you promised me X profit, you know, in exchange for using me to help you facilitate something. And so when a partnership agreement or an operating agreement or shareholder agreement is not done early on, or you haven't really carefully thought through who the owners are going to be and the proper documentation, you can unintentionally create issues where someone can make a claim for a partnership and have a claim to your intellectual property. Um, so it's so important early on, speak with a professional advisor, make sure you have your documents done right. Um, you know, I have clients that do their own research online, Google, whatever internet search engine and say, hey, I filled out these forms, I printed it off, am I good to go? And I tell my clients, you got to be careful about that. You know, not always do those forms online, are they tailored to your specific business? And so you got to be careful, you know, what documents are used. I've had clients that are starting an IT consulting company and they pull documents off related to a restaurant business oh. or completely business. And so you know, when you go to banks to get financing or, uh, you know, go to do lease work or whatever it is, the documents don't match and people start asking you questions and then you have to go backwards to kind of reinvent the wheel, recreate your business when you should have done it the right way the first time properly. It will save you a ton of money um, going forward and a lot of headaches. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing Andrew say is, when starting your business or thinking of forming a new business, speak to an attorney, speak to a lawyer, or as we say in the UK, speak to a qualified solicitor. You don't use that term there, Andrew. No, that's so, right. That's right. Solicitor, solicitor means something else over there. Solicitation means yes. something else in the US. That's that's solicitor, right. Absolutely. Attorney, a lawyer. Fantastic. Look, what about protection of intellectual property? 
let's say we've got some people listening now, they've got an established business, but they have not protected something that is unique to them in terms of what, how they operate, how they do things, maybe their processes or their, their documentation. How, is import, how important is it to protect IP or intellectual property? Sure, very important. Um, your IP and intellectual property is an asset of your business, okay? Mm -hmm. And without kind of claiming ownership and control of that asset, you may devalue the business. If you go to try and sell your business, one of the assets you want to sell is your intellectual property. And that can have extreme value to a buyer. And so if you don't have the protection in place, then what is a buyer buying essentially, right? It, meaning if somebody else can go and use that same intellectual property, why am I going to pay you X amount of dollars for that if it's out there open? And so ways to protect it are, for example, a trademark, right? With the United States Patent and Trademark Office or the Madrid Protocol, which is the international uh, trademark protection. So whether that's a name or a symbol, logo, you know, I think of kind of well-known famous ones, Under Armour brands and Nike, right? You see that logo, you know, you know, it's tied to athletic apparel, but what about your own company? What text um, or brand name or, you know, logo do you have that you want to protect? Separate and apart, Mac, you mentioned kind of processes or documentation. It's important that if you're entering into a contract, as a consultant to provide them with, you know, consulting services, but using your own kind of processes and things you've developed over time, it needs to be clear in the contract that you still maintain ownership of that intellectual property, that you're not doing work for this company and that by doing that, you're giving it away to them. And so that they can make a claim for the ownership of your intellectual property. But intellectual property is a key asset uh, and component of a company's value uh, and that's why it's so important to take the appropriate steps to protect that intellectual property. Yeah, that's a great answer. And do you have an example of someone who uh, thought they were doing the business the right way? Um, they thought the intellectual property was theirs and later on maybe found out actually that thing is trademarked or someone's come after them saying you cannot use that name or you cannot use that logo. You cannot. Do you have any examples of that? Yes costly has that been for them? So I've got a, a couple of different clients. One that comes to mind is a uh, personal trainer, physical rehabilitation company, and they've been growing tremendously and quickly uh, throughout the East Coast, mid-Atlantic area of the United wow. States. And we've been looking into trademark. He's using a name. It turns out that there's another entity across the country on the West Coast using a similar name. And even though we're on two different aspects, the East Coast and the West Coast of the United States, because the people already have a trademark name, they have sent us a cease and desist letter to say, hey, you've got to stop using this name. And my client has spent tremendous money and investment and time growing that brand. Wow. And now potentially it has to change the name and rebrand or we can fight it you know, or negotiate some kind of resolution, a licensing fee or something like that. But the important component here is this individual has spent, prior to talking with an attorney, a tremendous amount of his own time and energy and money developing a brand, which is a good brand. Hmm. People have come to know it, but it turns out a small place on the West Coast has the same name, but already trademarked, has sent us a cease and desist letter. And there are attorneys and websites and people out there kind of tracking 
oh. trademark and names out there and they find you and they send you a cease and desist letter. And to fight that can be expensive, you know, much more expensive than potentially rebranding, depending where you are in the business, right? If you're just starting out, it may be cheaper to, you know, rebrand. But if somebody like my client has, you know, spent years developing his brand, it may be worth, and we're still discussing, you know, fighting it and seeing what we can do or try and reach a, a negotiated resolution of some sort. So it's important to figure out from a trademark perspective what rights you can protect before kind of coming up with that name and brand to see what else is out there um, mm -hmm. and to avoid any kind of conflict, an expensive conflict. So what I'm hearing you say also, Andrew, is before you launch a new product, before you launch a new service, before you launch your new company, speak to Andrew Schwartz or someone like that to say, okay, how do I protect you? Because you may not think it now, but right. it's only a year, two years, three years later, where all the investment that you have put in into that new product launch, into that new business launch, comes to bite you and suddenly it's costing you a lot more. Great, thank you. Yeah, and, and you know, one of the things that I see is my clients that are entrepreneurs, they've got great products and great services. They're brilliant minds, these small companies, but they're not always thinking about kind of crossing the T's, dotting the I's about the legal aspects of what they can do to protect themselves. And sometimes they don't even know what they don't know. Correct. Whereas, you know, lawyers, professional advisors, they see kind of when things go south and can advise clients say, hey, have you thought about this? You know, maybe we need to be thinking about this. And a lot of my entrepreneurial and small business clients would say, you know what? I didn't even think about that. I've been so focused on starting my business and like running with it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's important to take a step away, back. right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. But you got to, you know, do it in small steps. Yeah, absolutely. And if they've got someone like you on their side, they can only really be going the right way. So thank you for that. The um, the other thing I've seen is the use of NDAs, um, non-disclosure agreements. Now, explain to us what is, what is a non-disclosure agreement? I know what it is, but just for the sure. audience who doesn't know. And most importantly, why is that important? And is it worth having an NDA when you are in the middle of contract uh, yes. negotiations. Absolutely. So what Mac is talking about is what we call a confidentiality and non-disclosure agreement, NDA. And so anytime you are bringing on a potential uh, partner or a third-party business advisor or exploring a business relationship or a potential acquisition or sale, that would be the time when you want to use what we call an NDA because you want to protect your information that you're going to be sharing with that receiving party, we call it. So the, mm -hmm. the sharing party is the disclosing party, then there's the receiving party. And so what you want is to lay out what is deemed confidential information of yours, okay? For example, a medical practice, if you're gonna sell it, patient list, medical records, or an IT consulting company, okay? Your software development you've developed, licensing agreements, um, other types of agreements and intellectual property would fall under the umbrella of confidential information. And so it's important to have this agreement in place and they're not terribly long, but it puts the receiving party on notice that says, look, this company is gonna share the information with me for the purposes of evaluating, evaluating a business relationship. And then I can't use it for any other purpose unless they consent. Now, at, 
the outset of a business relationship is the time to do it, not after you've already shared information. So prior to even sharing information, one of the first steps when you start talking with somebody is to put this NDA in place. Now, one of the questions I often get is, well, it's a piece of paper. We both signed it. Is it worth anything, right? Yes, it is. They are enforceable. We have litigated cases where people have received information and they're a competitor and take, have taken our information, client list, customer list, supplier list, oh, wow. and gone and contacted them, right? To kind of do like an end run, circumvent us and cut us out of a deal or the growth of our company. And so they're enforceable. We've prevailed on those. You can okay. get damages. It's important to have a remedies and damages provision in there that spells out what happens when this NDA is breached, right? When someone steals your confidential information. So, and there's, you know, one-sided NDAs, meaning I'm just sharing information and you can't disclose it, but there may be times when both parties are sharing information with each other. So it should be a mutual NDA. We have an understanding we're both going to exchange right. information, but we can't share it with outside parties. So it's a mechanism to protect what we talked about earlier, your intellectual property and other assets of the business and financial information, budgets and things like that. Yeah. And from a, yeah, thank you. Great explanation, by the way. And from uh, those who don't get it, from a um, marriage relationship point of view, before you get some people, before they get into uh, marriage, may get someone to sign an, another type of contract, an agreement called what there, Andrew? A uh, prenup. A prenuptial <laughs> agreement. Yeah, so you may have heard of prenup. Yeah. You know, it's there to protect your wealth, your assets before you got into that marriage. And again, you don't want to be giving information away freely if someone may be able to take it and go and use it. So the NDA protects you furthermore, um, and there is comeback if they do go against that. It's a great, Absolutely. great answer uh, there, um, Andrew. Thanks for that. The other thing I see in legal terms a lot, and I wonder if you can explain it and why it's important as well, is that term force majeure, which yes. is great word, I believe. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's used in English language all the time, but what does it actually mean? A sure. force majeure's clause, yeah. Yes, so in short, and I'll give a bigger explanation, is it's when parties can't perform their obligations under a contract based on certain events happening, okay? And force majeure provisions and contracts have always been in contracts forever. And it's typically at the end of a contract where we'll, there's what we call the boilerplate legal language, right? They talk about the jurisdiction for court, there's miscellaneous provisions. It's always at the end there. The attorneys always put it in there. People read it, sign contracts, have never put much thought into it. Right. But since COVID has occurred over the last two and a half, three years, force majeures have been at the forefront of, of attorneys' minds and contracts and are so important and actually heavily negotiated now. And kind of the language has been revamped. So just for the audience out there, what it says is, look, if I'm supposed to build your building for you, okay, and we're aware of all these supply chain shortages across the world, I can't get my product and the manufacturer is delayed in getting their product. So there's this kind of trickle down effect, then I shouldn't be penalized if I can't get the steel to put up the framework for your building because of a supply chain shortage or a labor shortage, okay? or a pandemic, or uh, acts of war, um, terrorism, earthquakes, a damage thing. So 
it's a mechanism that applies to both parties, typically in an agreement, that a one party is not penalized because they can't perform if one of these delineated uh, events occurs. And there's typically, almost always, these certain events that are spelled out clearly that if one of these things happens, then you're not put in default, okay? That it's okay you can't perform while that event is occurring. But the parties need to take appropriate steps to try and mitigate and work a way around it if they can to continue to be able to perform. But during that time period, someone, a party is not going to be penalized. Right. And then as soon as, as soon as that event has kind of cleared or has been diminished a little bit, then the parties are obligated to continue to perform. But it's been a very important provision in lease agreements, um, clients that own restaurants and bars, you know, for mm -hmm. a period of time, at least in the United States, I know in other parts of the world, yeah. restaurants were closed, right? And so there's no customers. The restaurant can't make any money. How are they going to pay rent? Okay. And so a lot of landlords, there was force majeure provisions in there, um, not really dealing with COVID. So now in our new lease agreements going forward, we've built in provisions that say if there's capacity limitation in a restaurant or the government shuts down in a particular area in Washington, D.C., the restaurants, that the tenant does not have to pay rent for a period of time due to this. So it's a protective clause for clients and it's become very important in today's world. And hence the reason why, why it's important to make sure you're speaking to a legal representative, an attorney, a lawyer, a solicitor, to make sure you have these things in place. Otherwise, it could be very, very costly. Uh, the other question I have for you there, Andrew, is this thing here, whereby some entrepreneurs know they must get legal contracts in place and they do a shoddy job. Like you said, they might print it off the internet and think that's enough. Or the other party they're working with sends them a contract. They don't read it fully. They just see money signs, right? Mm -hmm. Have you come across that with entrepreneurs and what's the dangers of not reading it fully and not understanding that legal contract and not going to someone like you to advise you? What's the dangers of that? Right. So the danger is that you've signed yourself up and committed yourself to perform in a certain manner that you may not even be able to perform, mm. all right? Or if you do perform, how is your compensation going to be paid? There may be things in there that talk about, okay, you'll pay if you perform, but it's oftentimes what's not even in a contract that should be that I've found entrepreneurs are not aware of, right? I'm not aware of. So some of the key provisions and contracts you have to be mindful of, termination provisions. Do you have the right to terminate, okay? Is it for cause or without cause? How is the compensation? You know, when do you get paid? Right. Do they have a provision? So for example, in construction projects and contracts, sometimes they'll say, if you're a subcontractor, you only get paid when the owner pays the general contractor, mm -hmm. like what we call a paid one paid. Well, you could perform and the GC can say, well, I haven't been paid, so I'm not paying you. So we need to be mindful of that. Um, and there's other, what we call limitation of liability and indemnification provision. You want to make sure that you're protected and that you're going to be properly compensated timely when you perform your job. And, you know, you always want an exit strategy. Okay? So that goes back to my termination. Do you have the right to get out? When can you get out? Is it an automatic renewal? 
Um, so I've seen when people have contacted me after they've signed a contract and said, can you look at this? <laughs> you know, we got an issue. And I said, I can look at it, but there's not much I can do. Right. You've signed it. I can explain to them what it means. So it's important to make sure you understand what every word says on that contract page and then try and figure out what's not in here. Some other things that I may need in here for protection that I need to seek out a lawyer that can advise me, you know, who does this on a regular basis. What other provisions do we need to put in here? Um, and most importantly, remedies. What happens when I'm not paid after I perform? How do I go after them? You know, and in which court, which jurisdiction? Yeah, you know, I love what you said there. What's not in that contract? Now, and I've done multi-million dollar businesses and um, real estate um, transactions. And I'll say this, the reason why whenever a contract comes up, I take it to my lawyer to oversee is, what am I missing here? What is not in there? And I advise my clients do the same. It may cost you a little bit, but it will save you a lot in the long run. So make sure you speak to Andrew. Andrew, while we're on the subject here, um, how do people get in contact with you if they need to? Um, sure. I've got another question, but I wanna just make sure that those who are listening in thinking, I like Andrew, he makes a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> I wanna get him on my side. How do they contact no. you? Yeah, I appreciate that. I gotta try and take a very practical and reasonable approach when I'm working with my clients. But you can reach me at steinsperling.com. That's S-T-E-I-N, Sperling, S-P-E-R-L-I-N-G.com. My bio is up there, Andrew Schwartz. My email is aschwartz at steinsperling.com. Once again, aschwartz at steinsperling.com. My phone number is 301-838-3327, 301-838-3327. And I'm happy to answer any questions people may have. Um, have initial consultations and so forth. All right, excellent. We'll, we'll make sure we put the, the link in here as well so people can um, listen. You're listening to the Business Success Show. We've got another question for Andrew Schultz, who is an attorney based in Maryland, works around the DC area and around the US. So I will say this, if you don't have a legal representative on your side in your business transactions, make sure you do have one. And if you're in that area, or Andrew can work with you, contact him. now. Uh, and also, I would say like, share, comment in wherever you can, and also subscribe, subscribe to what we're doing so you can get more awesome content like this. Andrew, I want to talk about joint venture agreements, okay? So someone has an opportunity to JV, joint venture with another partner, and they get into a conversation and it's all verbal. They have a verbal agreement that this party is going to do that and I'm going to do this. We're going to make money together and it's all verbal and the money starts flowing in and suddenly one party doesn't see anything or you are now losing out. What is the danger of getting into a partnership without the right legal paperwork or the right legal structure or agreements in place? Sure. And that I see it happen a lot, unfortunately. You know, it could be best friends or family members that say, mm -hmm. look, nothing's ever going to go wrong. We're best friends. We've known each other for years or we're brothers or, you know, father, son. I've seen it. And they say they lay out, they have multiple discussions. They've got a great idea for this venture. They think they're going to get rich quick and it's going to work. And maybe they start making some money, right? 
but I see the dispute happens when one person's working harder than the other, but they've agreed to split everything 50-50, and the guy working and showing up every day says, why am I splitting 50-50 if I'm here every day working? And so the danger with an oral argument is when they go to you know, have a dispute, even though they all agreed at some point in time how it was going to happen, conveniently, one of the parties is going to say, we never discussed that, or that was not my understanding of the agreement. And so it's so important to have it memorialized in writing that spells out each party's respective obligations, responsibilities, who's going to do what, who's going to contribute what to the venture, and how we're going to split things, and also have a dispute mechanism. What happens when we can't get along? You know, Mac, you had mentioned kind of the prenup and marriage. A joint venture and a business partnership with partners is a lot like a marriage. Right. And so, it, unfortunately, at some point in time, there are going to be disputes and there may be even a breakdown of the marriage. And so these contracts and agreements I've been talking about spell out provisions about what happens when we can no longer work together. OK, you know, does someone buy out somebody or do we agree to, you know, basically dissolve the business? So it's important to have what we call dispute or deadlock provisions in an agreement for that time in the future when things may go south. You know, obviously people don't want to plan for it at the beginning, but that is the time to plan for it when everyone is getting along. Because when people are not getting along, you're not going to agree on how to split up the business and the assets. Oh, I love what you said there. Amazing. Now, if you're thinking of doing joint ventures or getting into partnership, as you know, we've got a joint venture program. If you want to know what that is, reach out to me, Matt Catram. Dot com and I can explain that to you and the importance of the legal paperwork that goes with that program so that you can make a lot more money with your joint venture partners. But Andrew's just said it, you need to make sure you are protected. So Andrew, thank you very much for that. And I want to say, Andrew, thank you for coming in onto the Business Success Show, sharing so many golden nuggets, things that people, entrepreneurs especially, should be thinking about and putting into place that often they don't until they start losing money or they're in danger of losing their business. So I'm glad you outlined all of that. Um, so those of you listening, thank you for tuning into the Business Success Show. Remember to follow, remember to subscribe, make comments here as well. If you've got any questions for Andrew, make comments here as well so you can reach him. So Andrew, any last words before we finish and from a legal uh, perspective? Yeah, I would just say, you know, to entrepreneurs and the business owners out there, make sure you speak with your advisors sooner than later, get the appropriate documents, spend the money early on, it's going to end up costing you a lot. I, I have seen it. And I'm telling you, it will happen. So do it right the first time. Awesome. Wise words. Andrew, thank you very much. You take care until we speak again. Thank you for being here on the Business Success Show with us. Uh, for all our audience, thank you for listening in. Until next time, Matt Catrum and Andrew Schwartz checking out. Thank you. Bye for now.